Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Peter Lynch, a filmmaker whose work includes the documentaries Project Grizzly, Cyberman, and A Whale of a Tale, the hybrid film The Herd, and the new dramatic feature Birdland, a thriller starring Kathleen Monroe, David Alpe, Stephen McHattie, and Melanie Scrifano. Peter picked The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's exquisite 1974 character study come conspiracy thriller starring Gene Hackman as Harry Call, a master of surveillance technology who pulls off the greatest challenge of his career, remotely recording a conversation between two people in a very public place, and then finds himself unable to put it behind him. An elegantly messy drama that slowly builds into a white-knuckle, utterly-of-the-moment thriller surrounding Hackman with a wonderful supporting cast that includes John Cazale, Alan Garfield, Frederick Forrest, Cindy Williams, Terry Garr, an unbilled Robert Duvall, and a baby-faced Harrison Ford, the conversation is all the more remarkable for Coppola having knocked it out between Godfather movies. The first two. Oscar nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Sound, it lost in all three categories. Not that it matters. You've seen it, right? Because if you haven't, you're really going to want to before you listen to this episode. This is someone else's movie. Well, The Conversation is a film which I can really relate to in terms of it being an author-driven film Mm -hmm. by an auteur director. Um, And it's about a time that really interests me as well, that where there's the kind of paranoia of the post of the, you know, Watergate and um, there's a spiritual sort of crisis going on and cynicism um, that's, that's sort of a lot of the ideas of the film come out of and it's the idea of surveillance. And I just made a film where surveillance is, an important part of the story and so when I was making my film it was something that I had a look at and I I just love the way it uses it's kind of like blow up uh, Antonioni's blow up but with sound about sound yeah and um, that to me leaves a lot open to the imagination and um, so, but I really love the fact that it's the way it bends genre and but it's freely not uh, formulaic it's something that's also reminds me that it's made somewhat like a documentary in that I can tell that it's that a lot was put into the editing and it's there's a very free sort of structural explosion of of the story that I think was really made in the edit and the sound edit as well is so intricate to the storytelling which I find in, uh, of my interest yeah it is I can't say it's my favorite couple of film but it's mm-hmm. the one I always come back to more quickly I guess because it has all of those amazing technical merits, but it doesn't reveal any of them. It, right. It hides them from the audience as long as possible. Yeah. Um, it's an almost unconsciously cinematic movie mm-hmm. as an experience. I mean, I just, I remember seeing it and your very first impulse is to lean forward, right? To watch yeah. that movie is to be drawn into it. Yeah. Before they introduce Hackman, before they introduce the world, you just, that gorgeous opening shot that, isn't about anything but is about everything and, yeah. and filled with weird noises and it's just so marvelously analog now too well it starts off in chaos and kind of ends in a kind of chaos mm-hmm. but but the world has been something has been revealed along the way and it keeps showing you you know asks a very you, a certain question that you hear the the two main characters in that chaos being you know obfuscated by polyrhythms of drums and mimes following Harry Call, the central character, and you're wondering who's following who and who's looking at who, and you don't really, it's like the opening of Chinatown where you're looking at, at an image staring you right in the face and it's shown to you a few times, and as the story unfolds, more and more is revealed, and each time those same lines that are pretty well the same, there's slight variations on them, you're, you're looking at a similar picture and yet the story is slowly evolving and, and the character moves from watching to becoming more involved in the, in the story as it, as it unfolds. Yeah. And you can say that for the film as a whole, too. The thing mm-hmm. doesn't change, but our understanding of it does. Exactly, yeah. And um, a lot of that has to do with the, the sort of classic noir structure that's imposed on it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a contemporary film. It's, it makes no bones about that. Yes. But 
by using the the perspective of an investigator who's brought in to solve a mystery or to capture something which then becomes a mystery the the themes of obsession and betrayal and all the other stuff it is it's just a full-on i mean it might as well be raymond chandler yes um, except that it's working at a level of technological expertise that chandler never had any patience for well it's interesting too that i think it that harry call is this guy who is he's a professional he's a but he's a bug guy you know and yeah. that's his art form and he's a misanthrope doesn't really fit in he's like the you know coppola talks about how he drew on herman hess's step uh seven wolf as his character this kind of um lonely loner kind of guy and so he's this guy who who's really doing it as a business he's not he doesn't really he says i don't have anything to hide or you know the only thing i have that's of any importance is my keys you know mm. and there's these kind of illusions that he's that he's someone who's not really involved in the actual story like he doesn't really care what the material is what the story is he's more about the form he's more about he's doing a job and he gets paid for it but in this case something starts to haunt him as as he starts to de- decode it and unravel the sound and the and all the, the machinations around it he starts to you, you don't know what to what extent he's fully understanding the material in front of him to what is be- becoming like a representative of his own delusions, his own paranoia mm-hmm. and his own issues of guilt. And that comes out in his, his Catholicism and his, his puritanical response to one of the other buggers who, you know, says something to about says Jesus Christ or his assistant says that and it offends him. Right. And even to the end where he cracks open the Madonna image and there's nothing inside it. And that kind of, the confession part, which is also the kind of proto, you know, uh, surveillance in a way, he gets drawn into these these pockets of of um, perception that challenges his notion of what he's seeing, but also who what his identity is is coming unraveled, or sort of apart as he as he gets more involved. And I guess it's like Chinatown in that way. Like Jake, yeah, he's yeah. going in at first. He's doing it like it's a job, right? And then something happens that sticks in his craw that he can't live with anymore without getting personally involved. And I think the same thing happens to Harry Call. Is there something he starts to perceive that that these this woman? He, it's sort of like there's he's found an intimacy with the image of the woman and the and the the guy, and starts to think that they're about to be you know murdered by the, you know the disgruntled the the vengeful um, husband mm-hmm. corporate evil corporate guy and so he takes that on as a narrative but the narrative is not necessarily as clear as what it you know what he first can unravel you know so it's what he prefers to believe at that as he's in that point in the juncture of the story yeah i i keep coming back to the nor thing partially because as i was explaining earlier i foolishly thought today we were going to be doing the line. Right. Well, I've, scheduled, yeah. I've scheduled a bunch of episodes to the listener. I'm very sorry. I'm not yeah. usually this stupid. Uh, but I scheduled a bunch of stuff. I thought the conversation was tomorrow on the Long Goodbye right. today. So my head is still full yes. of... Well, we can... Yeah. I like the noir aspect. But they line up. Yeah. That's the other thing. They and really do. Yeah. There's a there's that thing, that movement, and Chinatown's the other one. In the early 70s with the new American cinema, yeah. we hit a point where we... Filmmakers hit a point where they knew their audience was familiar with the tropes yes. of this genre and they could just take it apart and put it together anywhere. And the conversation is maybe the least noirish of them because it's set in San Francisco and it's removed from everything um, in that way. It's not about detection, really. The, the mystery is solved ostensibly in the very first scene. The challenge is dealt with like the conversation has been recorded and so you end up looking at it backwards almost like through a dark mirror mm-hmm. and Harry Call hiding something that went wrong before that he carries the stain of everybody else knows about it but we never find out what it is it's kind of the same thing as Chinatown's device of yes. whatever happened in Chinatown yes someone did the right thing people got hurt or killed and as a result, he's buried himself in this little box where he refuses to come out, won't engage with anyone emotionally, won't reveal anything about himself, is horrified to be seen. Mm-hmm. And yet everything about the movie paints him as the knight, paints him as the good guy, paints him as someone who will do the right thing. Even the fact that he chooses or that Coppola gave him that 
insane translucent raincoat. Yes. Where you literally can't hide anything. Yes. But you and you don't get wet like that. That he wears it like this imagined veil of protection. Yes. And I, I'm just stunned by how easily so much of this film just slots into the expected Sam Spade stuff where, you know, the rot is the thing that hired him rather than the thing he's chasing. Well, the interesting thing, too, I think about noir is people associate it with gumshoe or detectives and, um, you know, murder mysteries. and But really, they're kind of often psychological portraits. Sure. And they're portraits of usually a central character, but also of the time. They're like hold up a mirror and to different sources of illumination of the paranoia of the time. And yeah. in this case, being kind of post-Watergate, being post, you know, Vietnam is going on, it's post-Kenny assassination. There's a kind of cynicism and a, a fear of, of corporations having control. Yeah. Even that the, the corporation doesn't, you don't quite know um, what the name of the corporation is. You don't really know who's who. The, the director that he's supposed to be working for isn't there when he shows up the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see him slowly getting more personally involved from being this professional guy to becoming emotionally embroiled. And you see the things that he has of issues of um, that he's someone who photographs people or surveils people but can't stand to be photographed himself. Right. And, and that extends to the intimacy you see with women. Like he seems to be more comfortable looking at the image of the woman and the mystery of the unscrambling of the sound. He feels more intimate with that relationship to the characters than a woman trying to make out with him or seduce him or you know have intimacy relations with him. He seems more comfortable when it's in the realm of this distanced medium, you know, yeah. or the projected medium, yeah. where he can assume exactly. whatever he wants rather than exactly. have to deal with, you know, the the what did they used to call it? The messy reality of other people's feelings, right? Where as soon as any other variable is introduced, he shuts down. Yes, um, the thing with the bug in the, the that little phone tap bug thing is is so fascinating because it's so obvious yeah. to us and yeah. not to him. I love what you said too about the analog. Like it comes at a time when analog was. You could see how mechanics of things work, yeah. like the reel to reels. Yes, yeah. or or that the shotgun. I mean, I think I understand that he did a lot of research um, with what was the state of the art. But he also, I think, made up <laughs> things that were probably almost like science fiction. But they real really something that the medium probably grew into probably shortly after. Yeah, it's weird to see stuff predicted yeah. that way. But I like the fact that there's this in the world now it's more digital and hidden and there it's this analog system that you can see you can almost visualize the sound of people moving around on the reel to reel like it's something feels very human and the analog relationship to the world is completely shifted to indexing time digitally now yeah. so and surveillance yeah. is is ubiquitous ubiquitous like with my film cyber sort cyberman you could still, the documentary where those professor uh, man would strap cameras on himself, you could still see a grainy kind of image of what he was filming, right? right. But now the surveillance is not is, is our existence. It's, it's what's our presence, our footprint, our digital footprint. When we use our, our cell phone, when we use our credit card, when we drive through a light, when we go into a bank, when we... It's just we are completely immersed in it, whereas there... It was still something you had to point to, like a filmmaker. Like he's a proto filmmaker. You know, yeah. there's something about the process that Harry is doing is very much the way a, a documentary filmmaker would observe a character's manner of operation, right? And start mm-hmm. to try to make meaning out of that, the sound and the images. And he's editing it and trying to look for patterns and like this kind of thing. But for sure it is noirish. And, and what's interesting is I think for an American film at that time, it really has that that feeling of a of a kind of almost like a Polish art film. Yeah. You know, like it's got that greenish kind of quality that, that you would see in, in a European in the European cinema. And I think he was very influenced by your European cinema at that time. And there's a freedom about like the form of noir. It, it he plays it out, but it's like that Jean-Luc Godard quote like everything has a beginning middle and end but not necessarily in that order right he's really much playing with structure and sound and and I love the expressionistic element of the sound it reminds me of um, Hitchcock's The Birds where he's created 
a sound. He's made he's made sound, the sound of the bug world and the mystery of it. He's made it a character, mm-hmm. and it's you, like can, a, you hear that sound going. Yeah, you know, it's like, like a signature, exactly. And I think Hitchcock did that with the birds. He created that through electronic. If you if you really look at the birds, it's not realism. It's, it's the sound of those birds is quite expressionistic. But you don't when you're in the middle of it, it makes it more emotional. And the counterpoint to the soundtrack that that haunting sort of bluesy piano yeah. creates a this oscillation between the dissonant cognitive dissonance between what he's trying to struggle with and make meaning of that seems impenetrable and more his his emotional his slow emotional involvement in this or unravel you know emotional yeah. unraveling because the closer we get to harry the more we see how unstable he is and, exactly and it's it's weird that I don't associate Coppola with psychological realism quite so much because The Godfather and The Godfather 2 I mean there are realist portraits sure but they're so grandiose and they're so big and operatic yeah Yeah. exactly and and by the time you got to the third one the emotions are so high and so pitched and then right in the middle of the first two he makes this and it's almost like a divertisement for him he's just wanted to do something else between giant machines and it's probably the most astute thing the most accurate uh, acute emotional state film he's ever realized yeah and with it, an unemotional character exactly like it, it's like his the, the Harry Cole is, is his least emotional character on the surface mm-hmm. but it's there's something seems to be like he's on there's something c- coming unhinged like Taxi Driver in a way you've got this Taxi Driver is more you can see that he's more unstable right. on the surface but that the, the tearing apart of the room uh, at the end, looking for the bugs, seems almost as apocalyptic as the end of Cat Taxi Driver, yeah. or something. But you know, it's emotionally directed distraction. Yeah. He's ruining his environment rather exactly. than lashing out. Exactly, and, and the, the saxophone, I guess, is his little connection to. Well, it has a connection to the noir, I think. Yeah, but it also has a connection to the soul and the individual, like his his spirit within the context of a this dark corporate cloak that's coming down and that he's feeling oppressed by and doesn't he's sort of digging in and and sort of it's like his last stand in a way against the man and against the institution that he that we don't really know what it is but there's something that he's he's decided that he can't live with it yeah and it's i i really do think it's probably hackman's best performance i mean it's that or night moves yeah, it's and really beautiful. Yeah, there's so much in there, and he's one. I think it was Eastwood who said that Hackman's unique gift is that he never seems to be doing anything at all. He's right, just occupying that character space. Yeah. And the reason he cast him in in Unforgiven is because he wanted people to like this monster. Right, and he said that Hackman would be the thing that drove you, that kept you from running away, and and never fully declaring anybody a good guy or a bad guy because, well, he's Gene Hackman, he can't yeah. be a monster. And in this, it's it's so clear that he is deeply disturbed. There is something fundamentally wrong with Harry Call, but Hackman makes it, he makes you lean forward. You want, I wanted to understand it rather than be repulsed by it. Like Whatever's wrong with him is interesting. Well, apparently that he was quite uncomfortable with the preparation of the plot because Coppola was trying to really make him schlubby and, and he made him wear the raincoat yeah, yeah, and he, he made him shave his hair back. Yes, because he's and, he's an early middle-aged man. Yeah. I know Hackman himself wasn't that age. Exactly. And he just tried to, I think he really turned him into a kind of a cipher, kind of, he wanted him to sort of blend into the, the, the almost fall away from the screen. And apparently too, he did in the material he felt the script like he had just come off like French Connection or yeah. things where he was got to be quite a even though he's doing dark things a likable got a role. Oh no, he was the hero. He yeah. was a man of action. Exactly. And um, whereas in this, it was the action is is more internal. And even though there there is a clear manner of operation, like the preoccupation with playing with the the, the recording devices and things that they're clearly Coppola clearly wants to show you that this guy is a master of that medium. Mm. He also just shows there's this kind of pain or this 
existential uh, spiritual quandary that that this guy is sort of navig trying to navigate this world where he's been completely detached and where he's been just this kind of corporate um, business basically a businessman he's mm-hmm. treated what he's doing as a business and and reflected in when you go to that um, great uh, um, the oh, convention the, the, the and, and he, yeah and he gets punked by the, the, the surveillance pen um, and just how pissed like his aunt like he's just so and he's profoundly yeah, offended yeah yeah, yeah. And, and then he's the, the woman he's set up with with um, getting his tape stolen and um, but you just you, when he goes to the Terry the, the Terry Gar the first relationship where mm-hmm. he sees he has a relationship with a woman you see how stunted and how his problems with intimacy and um, communication and um, but the real story seems to revolve mostly around the Union Square you know where in the it's just this whole playing out of the brilliance of, of the repetition of those the you know the Red Red Robin Bop Bop and the Long kind of song with the chaos the mime is clearly there's the the characters are walking in a circle and which apparently they thought was hard to surveil. Yeah. And, you know, and then you realize the mime is probably following him, you know, and the mime, you yeah. know, and you realize it just, the complexity of the narrative is sort of just decanted from, it's brilliantly unpacked from that uh, as a structural device, using Union Square as, as a central um place and not only does do you get that it also resonates with the guy holding the shotgun the mic that that's an invention of that for sound it feels a little bit like the kennedy assassination exactly, and, yeah. and the grassy knoll and who's watching who and the, the idea of conspiracy and that kind of stuff that kind of paranoia that he and then it becomes really personal in that he starts to carry the guilt when he starts to feel he has the he believes to be true what is about to happen and then it happens and it's not doesn't happen the way it quite happens he feels like he was somehow responsible for it he felt mm-hmm. like he had some he had he had overheard something through his um, clandestine uh, ups, you know uh, eavesdropping he feels like he it's almost Shakespearean like he he found this piece of information that he only he knew and and somehow he couldn't save the damsel and that somehow he was somehow responsible for that. Yeah, it's and that mm. is also a great unconscious anticipation of Watergate, I suppose, mm-hmm. because he's deep throat. If deep throat told the wrong people, exactly. If 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 the trust is placed in the wrong uh, reporter, yes, this is where you would have ended up. Yes, with everybody being allowed to like corruption wins yeah. essentially I was trying to come up with a better moral term yeah. but now corruption wins that's yeah. what this is about this and he gets that phone call where, near the end where it's like stay out of it Harry you know like yeah. it's, it's basically like being like it, don't worry Jake it's Chinatown kind of exactly yeah, yeah. Jake it's Chinatown it's it's the same kind of you can't do anything about it you're it's, this is bigger than you you know and yeah. you've, you've, just forget what you've just forget about it, you yeah. know. And the closest we <laughs> we're ever, watching, <laughs> and we're watching him too, yeah. because the closest we ever get to the actual events yeah. is through the distance, through the veil of, of whatever Call sees or hears or exactly. is watching. Um, we don't actually see the murder; we see shadows and exactly. reflection through a curtain or through a, a glass wall, yeah. which is such a stunning image. Yeah, and and this res- resonates with Psycho too. Yeah, the, this, yeah. the shower scene where the, the blood, blood comes out of the yeah. toilet. It so. is. It's it's a remarkable appropriation of a whole bunch of different cinema history and, and yeah. distilled into something that feels completely new. Absolutely, uh, which is a phrase I've been throwing around a lot this week somehow. But um, also, I think there's a romanticism of the European cinema of the biography and the personal storytelling, mm-hmm. and I think that was something apparently he felt that it was hard to humanize the Harry Cole character in a fact apparently with early screenings people weren't identifying with him. They basically, they hated him. (laughs) And so he started to do, try to humanize him and he started to build in the dream and the, the idea too of um, this idea that, that um, his story of growing up with polio and some guilt he had with his mother and 
um, he started to, to Coppola. It was, I think, a very much of a 70s style of, of art cinema yeah. to bring in personal biography into the character. And so, um, you know, Scorsese did it with Taxi Driver where he's in the back of the seat and he's talking, you know, like he's in the cab. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, Hitchcock did his own version of that kind of thing. But the, the feeling, the, the imprint of the filmmaker is really imbued with, with the Coppola uh, mythology and, and the mirror of, of that the you are sort of your film in a way, that mm-hmm. believing in that that kind of romanticism of storytelling and cinema and the auteur and that kind of thing. So I, I like, I feel I identify with that kind of romanticism. Yeah. It's also weirdly, I've never been able to accept Harry as a Coppola analog. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yes. I, I accept the, the argument, yes. but he doesn't enjoy things and Coppola, you know, yeah. food and people Wine and conversation. And yeah. He's so involved in the world and it comes out in his films that in this one where he tries to do something that's you know, aesthetic for lack of a better term, it works. Yeah. It works really well. But I also feel that like, it's part of it. Part of that is a judgment of Harry too. Yeah. That he doesn't want him to be the hero somehow or he knows he won't be. Well, I think that's the thing too, is that it's, it's a film and this is what I like about the film as well. It, I think film today's they lack allegory, they lack the kind of the story behind the story. Yeah. And what I like about those seventies films that, and his is like it's not like say the Parallax Viewer. It's about a political thriller. It's about a guy like one guy that's lost in the like it's almost Kafka esque in the corporate haze, mm-hmm. and so it's there's something about that that makes him uh, more like experimental and and it's kind of it doesn't fit the formula of the genre and and yet it it does um play off it does hit the the beats of a noir like we said earlier but it there's something that coppola's um he's using it as a him as a conceptual idea yeah it's not simply and that you have to believe like you don't know who the corporate guys are it's not a documentary you don't you're not told a lot of information a lot Mm -hmm. of information is withheld and i feel that is in keeping with a kind of the 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 the, the noir that the psychological portrait the mood the atmosphere of it the feeling of it and the the conceptual there's a story behind the story for Coppola that he's that he's creating a portrait of the times and it's yeah. not it's not just Harry Call it's not just he's emblematic of he sees him as an allegory for the time you know I think and that I love that ambition and I think that's really missing in a lot of cinema now yeah and it's true I mean he's sort of the if Coppola sees Harry as sort of a mercenary in this world because he doesn't his whole selling point is that he has no loyalty. He'll yeah. just do the job. Yeah. <clears throat> then what does that say about the nature of morality and, and where America was going at that point? You, you have this whole blurry sense that the world is falling apart. But as far as everybody <clears throat> else, you know, these people are successful businessmen and they're all doing really well. And yeah. there's a young couple in love. If you look at people, they look like avatars of a successful America. Exactly. But the second they open their mouths, you just realize how broken everything is. I think like I keep coming back to Harrison Ford's character yeah. who now is like Jared Kushner. He's every young, unqualified white guy who has this position of he's a secretary. Yeah. He's he's a he's yeah. a, a doorman. And, and in a strange way he's a bit like the guy in Apocalypse Now. Like yeah. The same it's kind of guy. The same function. He's at like the errand boy kind of yeah, yeah. telling on, on behalf of the big corporation exactly the front he's the guy when you go to any corporation who glad hands you but you know blows you off as soon as he realizes that there's he can't get anything from yeah. you from a power yeah. perspective and he's there to deliver your instructions yeah there's no interest in anything else yeah and and his role in the conversation is so I mean, it's really only interesting now because that's future superstar Harrison Ford. Yeah. But at the same time, you can see why he's future superstar Harrison Ford. He's he's given that some consideration. He's exactly. Really thought through what specific kind of an asshole he would be. Yeah, and it's as much as what he doesn't say as what he he says. It's, yeah, he, he delights impo- in withholding. Yeah, there's an imposing kind of quality about him and a, and a kind of menace. Mm-hmm. And and that I'm 
don't think that if my boss tells me that I wouldn't do something really bad to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's got that, that feeling yeah. like he's, he's cause he, and he's almost like out of a Conrad novel, you yeah. know, like the, he's waiting for the opportunity, a bag carpet bagger kind of guy. Like yeah. he'll, he'll do anything that the boss needs to have done to, on his behalf to make the things for, <laughs> for the corporation. Right. Yeah. You know, but, and at the same time, he he does you know he's clean cut he doesn't look you know like like a mobster yeah no he's but, the face of American success yeah he's a corporate shark in the waiting yeah I kind of wonder if his character in Working Girl isn't supposed to be the same guy exactly. although I also comfort myself with knowing that because Duval got whacked on his watch he probably got whacked too right so that's fine yeah but it, it is, is a nice twist too with the the end with um, Duval's character being the the victim mm-hmm. you know that the corporate they did a preemptive strike on, on him and it wasn't the poor young couple that were going to get whacked. It yeah. Was, and it wasn't about business. There's no, no corporate interest whatsoever. It's yeah. purely about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and placing... Self-interest. Yeah. yeah. And Just like Tony Soprano represents kind of corporate America of that time, like every guy would fantasize, like if I could really be potent i would really like to whack that guy and get him out of my way but because i work for a corporation i can't do that but in this case harry is this guy that's just kind of they they just expect him like don't you get it man just keep your mouth shut we'll pay you your 15 grand it's pretty good money move on you didn't see anything the corporate you know like you get that feeling and then there's something where he's something just physically is becomes immovable in his something wakes up in him and i think if i was thinking of some of the trigger it's it's partly his cathod- like oh, his, yeah. his, his you know his sense of duty and and guilt and from his mother in the dream and 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 that i think he really falls like he becomes um there's a sexual charge with the the girl yeah, he in fix, his picture he fixates, yeah, fixates on, on her and obsesses and that that somehow becomes not rational anymore he becomes like a knight and, and has to go becomes like an errant knight and he has to do something to save the damsel in distress mm-hmm. and then realizes that the forces are much bigger and darker than he ever imagined and but that he, he has his own delusions that come out of all the things that we talked about that are not really they're implied but you don't really you have to make your own draw your own conclusions as to what if he's slightly off the spectrum what is yeah. you know what his issues are yeah know? I, you know, all I know is but never between a, a Catholic and a moral certainty. Exactly. Um, and, of course, he's wrong. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing, exactly. too, is that yeah. you've, you've gone through this... He's this, blinded. But, yeah. yeah. And we know it before he does, which is fine. Yeah. Because there's, there's something truly shocking about that, because Coppola plays with... And he was doing it in The Godfather, too. You know, these are horrible people. Yeah. But they're nice to their family. Yeah. And so you're... You're corrupted by watching it. You're, exactly you, by wanting yeah. to empathize. You and see your hum, own humanness. How how and what how compelling certain things are in certain. If you were in those circumstances yeah. of power and what's at stake, and we're given all of the clues yeah. that not only is Harry Cole not a great person, but that he's making mistakes. We get to see yeah. it, and we still want him to be right because he's Gene Hackman, and yeah. you know he's he's got that clarity of purpose and everything about the performance pulls you into wanting him to be right because wouldn't that be great and it's the same thing with Chinatown it's the same thing with well the long goodbye is a, a, the moral a, ambiguity yeah a well, different like, kind of disappointment in that case because it ends with Marlowe acting against all moral codes but exactly. he's still being correct and in yes. this one he just fails yes. so completely yes to do yeah. anything although he did do the job he was contracted for which I'm sure yeah. in a year's time will give and at a certain solace. point he even the, the it wasn't even about the money anymore yeah, yeah. he actually went back and you know gave it it didn't you know he wasn't prepared to take it yeah he tried to know. buy his way back out yeah, exactly and, that, which of course as Catholic as it gets I love the guy who who's the other kind of a bit of a weasel master but the other rock star butter oh, from Garfield. New York yeah from yeah. New York and I like the fact because he kind of undresses Harry in the sense. Also, he alludes to that there's some darkness left, some un, some business that was back in New York and Chicago right. that was kind of sketchy. And how the hell did he not go down, you know, for that? And you know, I can see why you're down here in sunny LA because basically he's implying that he's left something behind that maybe is a little bit unsavory, a little bit 
like and that he hasn't morally the, the consequences are the, the chickens are starting to come home to roost yeah. in his psyche and starting to manifest in his perception of this story and and how it affects his him on an emotional psychic level yeah. you know that other great noir trope you get out yeah. but you don't get away exactly and yeah and it's hard um, to come clean in a dirty world exactly. I forget which line it's from yeah. a movie but it's one yeah. of those noirs it's every movie. <laughs> yeah. there is something yeah and there is something great about the contrast between uh, Hatman and, and Garfield because he is just so loud and obnoxious yeah. but he's also as it turns out better at his job than Call is right and so you you again you're, you're on Call's side at first like, yeah. Harry doesn't like him so I don't yeah. like him but actually yeah he's he's a showman he's like a sideshow yeah. top bar talker you know and for the early 70s again yeah. that's just that's where america was going yeah pt barnumish yeah <laughs> they like flash he's yeah. got the cooler toys yeah and his guy is even prepared to leave like because 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 yeah. yeah he doesn't have harry doesn't have much of a sense of humor and uh, the other guy just has enough with him wants to join the sexier team with the babes on the arm and you know go out and party yeah and, who wouldn't yeah <laughs> I mean, the offers, he probably pays better yeah exactly and and all harry has is this moral clarity that isn't yeah clear at all yeah yeah it's fascinating god it's a great you could go into it for days and days and days it's yeah. just such a such a magnificent the sound work on thing. it is is revelatory like it's at, for its time i mm -hmm. think it's so i love the expressionistic nature of it and the polyrhythmic act. and it really kind of mirrors the editing and the, the 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 actual unraveling of the image and this and that one line you know about the he would kill murder us if if he had a chance, had a chance yeah. right that that there's slight variations on that that they recorded that are pretty well saying the same thing but just incrementally said enough to create that doubt or trigger different i you know ways of thinking about it mm -hmm. but the picture is sort of the same basic picture right and i think the sound to come up with a this sort of um expressionistic way of making that the the way into it is so it's really structurally interesting how the sound plays in counterpart to the the more jazz like you know noirish melancholic you know harry's kind of you know on you know, it's like a bit taxi driver, like yeah, that yeah. kind of noir sound that where he's driving and you know into the night, you know, in the darkness. Yeah, all the tropes are there, but they're yeah. functioning against their purposes. Exactly, and yeah. and yeah, it's so unique for Coppola's filmography. It yeah. almost feels like, I mean, it of course it does because yeah. De Palma ended up doing it in Blowout, but it almost feels like a De Palma film from that period. It's just this mm -hmm. weird anomaly in both of their filmographies that Coppola made this one and yeah. De Palma didn't. Yeah, but. I don't think anyone else could have either because the timing, the, the, the world of the film, the fact that he had access when he had access to this stuff, it's just... It's, well, the, yeah, you know. the pressure's coming off doing Godfather, which was a gargantuan success. Mm, but no one um, knew at the time. Yeah, that was and the power... Risk. Yeah, and I think he had started writing this in the, even maybe before, so it was probably like a labor of love story. It probably was really lining up with the times and he probably sensed that like wanted to express that and i think he's he's a, an artist and wanted to do something that was more like a he was watching a lot of european art like he was a fan of bertolucci and he wanted to make that kind of feeling emotional kind of personal exploration whereas the mechanics of doing a, the bigger hollywood funded kind of projects as much as they had his imprint on i think this was a like he was doing it was almost like it's more improvised mm -hmm. than, than the other work and a, more of a conceptual it's more of a conceptual experimental thriller than than it is you know following a genre per se you know what i mean and yeah, i think yeah. he was attracted to being able to have that artistic freedom and to express himself in a, in a different more intimate kind of scale where it was smaller crew it's almost shot like a do documentary you yeah. know like it's it so, feels very run and gun, yes. even though it couldn't have been because yeah. of crowd control and everything else that would be going exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. It's deceptively light and small. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. And I think they did probably take some advantage of, of actual putting them in with real people. Like, there was the use of the San Francisco feels... I mean, the corporate's head office feels... Diff, like more controlled, but, right. the, but when you're in Union Square, there is a, a kind of a documentary kind of aspect to it. 
yeah. a general bustle. That yeah. fe- I mean, it feels real even if it's staged. So yeah. it just, and because that's how it opens, yeah. you're, you're immediately thrown into a sense of reality that yeah. clearly is being you know tweaked and twisted yeah. throughout. And well, that's the whole point, right? At first you think you're going, oh yeah, okay. You associate, by now we all associate those long lenses with surveillance. Mm-hmm. But he quickly dispenses with that and it becomes really, you're just watching Harry Call and his manner of operation. And as you said earlier, you're, everything you know is only what he's lo- either looking at or what your his manner of operation that the camera is is observing. Yeah. So there's ne- it's never breaks from that continuity. And the only time is the dream sequence, which is still in the familiar. It's still in a familiar. It's still in the Union Square. Or I think, yeah, it's, or it's somewhere in. It's, it's an ersatz realization yeah, of it, but it's exactly. close enough. Yeah. yeah, and it and and then so outside of that, you're always and 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 the fragments of of the murder that you see the the glass, like you said, and that 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 is kind of like is in his head but everything else feels you're with him and it's his perspective mm-hmm. even though you're the psycho psychology of it because of the sound and the disorienting sound in the beginning you feel like there's more angles more things going on but it's it's really illusory yeah. it's not it's, it's a, not actually happening because it's really quite pared back and spare and then the camera moves you know yeah no it's a beautiful rigid yeah. construction it just convinces you to think that it's something else which is of course exactly the whole aesthetic of the film and yeah. the story yeah so i forgot to ask at the beginning what was your first experience when did you first see it i saw it in the movie theaters like in toronto in its original release yeah and it, i saw it in film and um i just remember i i equated it with european art cinema i thought mm. having her like i'd seen um his earlier work but i just I pictured him um, doing a bigger kind of more controlled cinema. Yeah. And so I was really startled by the the kind of the free uh, filmmaking that was I associated with European art cinema. But there is the, the, the draw and the history of the old, the, the 50s, 40s noir and the, or the detective, you know, crime story. Yeah. So murder mystery. So those two, I, I was a fan of both those forms so it really it really struck me as something quite powerful even though I was quite young you know like a young young guy but yeah I didn't catch up to yeah. it until the 80s I would have loved to have seen it the first time through yeah. I was too young yeah uh, and then this brings us more or less although you, although you did sort of touch on it yeah. at the very beginning this brings us to the, the closer question of the podcast which is you know like what of the conversation have you absorbed I mean so many of your films are documentaries did you ever find a way to use it as an influence or well I think in the sense of I really the way it's put together I feel intrinsically is how I like I live my wife is the editor of my films Caroline Christie and sound and picture and the kind of structural expressionistic editing that is employed in that film I think is the kind of form the kind of way I approach material Mm -hmm. so even in my documentary work i feel that that kind of editing and using sound express expressionistically um and um sometimes polyrhythmically repeating certain images and montage and things i could say i feel like that that film would have made a a big uh, influence on me and i also think with my film recent film birdland it really um I wanted to completely blur the lines between what is surveilled and what is the internal aspect of the character. And because the, we move from, as you say, the, the analog world of, of that time, the, the reel-to-reel, the old bugs, the things where you could see the mechanics of everything was, was vis- visible. Um, now everything is hidden and digitally everything is... Um, surveillance affects us in ways when you put a camera on someone it changes the way they behave when you live in a society that is completely surveilled it changes the way we all behave so i was interested in the comparisons because i think it is ultimately the kind of film that's asking what is real you know and what is imagined as in harry call's world is as real as what is 
and, and what we all perceive to be seeing and hearing is making us question, ask that question, what is real? So I think I take a lot from that film stylistically because of the, I like the fractured narrative, the storytelling, and very much that my film too, The Birdland, for instance, is draws on those kind of French New Wave kind of films that, that are drawing on American cinema and also I'm drawing on early B-movie detective noir. So I kind of really feel in sync with that film, even though mine still, even though that was a low budget by Coppola standards, for me it was it's probably still coffee money for, for <laughs> that film. But but still, um, I really um, draw a lot. I, I drew a lot from that film in terms of its use of surveillance, its use of perception, guilt, the kind of the pull of sex and death and 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 how but and ultimately uh, it's pure ambition of of wanting to be a portrait of the times and that that creating the mood of that is as much a noir the world that the noir creates is as much narrative as it gives as much meaning to the film as the narrative Mm -hmm. and the yeah the the (coughs) difference i suppose the difference between the conversation and and any film made now is the as you say, the awareness of surveillance is already... We've yeah. internalized it. We, yeah. we know there is no such thing as genuine privacy. Yeah. And so the conversation 45 years later feels you know, sort of adorably dated in that it's yeah. about one man trying to preserve himself. But it's also everything, right? Like, it's, it's not just yeah. a metaphor. It's yeah. really a mission statement. Exactly. What, what, what also is really quite brilliant is that it's title the conversation it's 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 a couple in this park who just say a couple of lines Mm -hmm. and yet it's a whole feature film that's mostly visual with there are these it is about sound and it it is sonically revelatory but it's really about the mess on scene it's really like what is unfolding is is very visual and it's it's really pure cinema like it's very expressive cinema Yeah. yeah You can see Coppola daring himself into it, really. You know, exactly. Like, my whole movie is going to be about an exchange, yeah, and not. Yeah. And somehow he ended up making one of the one of the defining American films of the seventies. Exactly. In a decade where everything is a defining American, like it's just yeah. full of great stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it captures the delirium and the paranoia and of the times and the and and kind of this how probably the the corporate man. And what that means in um, at that moment in time, you know, for him, what that that corporate cipher and and the like you say the the, the Harrison Ford character that represents the, the guy at the front, the PR guy almost at the yeah, front, yeah. at the front front man, and you know, there's just so so many layers to it, and the technology. I also just love the use, the romanticization of technology of, of where it was at at that time. It was like still the, the idea of the future is still on the horizon yeah. of like growing up as a kid. It was like that kind of, it, everything was like either the Flintstones or the Jetsons. Like it was either, <laughs> either bedrock or, or somehow the future was always this place somewhere on the horizon. And even there's something almost slightly sci-fi about the corporation that, Oh, headquarters, yeah. you know, very much yeah. so. I mean, it's a, it's just a small, yeah, Alphaville, almost. It's like yeah. Alf Godard's Alphaville, <laughs> or a Bond film, yeah, right? a Bond, like it, yeah, it's just a little bit further away, yeah. But uh, somehow it's ground level normal, and everything yeah. is worse for it. Yeah, way to go, America. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say a mirror of the times. Yeah, you know, like it really mirrors it. I kind of wonder what the. Um, what the what the 2022 movies are going to look like the stuff that's being started now yeah rattling around in people's subconsciouses I, I don't know that you can make techno thrillers anymore without turning them into a born movie or bond movie right or something where there's a different recognizable shape yeah or I wonder if it if you there's almost no point trying to do the tech anymore and if it will be more this kind of dystopic almost like shot like children of men where it's like everything is or like it's kind of like going into the ruins of nature the end of nature and the the architecture being kind of deconstructed and it's hard to, to say whether how because i mean you've got these kids that are 
completely obsessed with looking at the small screen. They're watching gamers and watching other gamers punk other gamers yeah. and probably listening to either gangster rap or Skrillex or something, you know, like somewhere in between there. It's all removed from their own experience. Exactly. Like, like culturally, you could be living in Stainer or some small town and there is wired into, you know, rap and hip hop as some kid from South Central almost. And mm -hmm. so it's, what is that, that kind of, um, almost like aliens have taken over it's like a Ray Bradbury story on steroids, you know, like it's how that will manifest. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. But the intimate scale of, of, of the Coppola film, I think, is a great way of dealing with it. It's the, I think it's, because it, it becomes a human story. And it, it's not like Parallax View, let's say, was made the same year. Or they're, they're like, it's about big forces, big the big stage. Whereas this is about off, off, like it's an off camera. It's off stage, off the stage. It's just happening, you know, out, out, out of the sight of of the of the bigger news cameras. It's yeah. it's a, like this someone's dirty little life and their compromises and how they start to come home to roost. You know, yeah. it's about the functionaries yeah. and their lack of yeah. Like if you don't have any real responsibility, if you're just pushing a button or yeah. delivering a tape, yeah, yeah, does that make you part of the machine? Or yeah. can, how long can you pretend to be outside yeah. of the machine when you're working for it? Yeah, and do you really have as much agent? Like Harry started to feel like he was maybe have getting some agency that was not just making a buck or delivering it as a corporate exchange, right. and all of a sudden. Did he really, once he, he ripped his place apart and felt like, probably felt good doing it, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and then realized that he gets the call going, no, don't worry, don't don't even, don't bother. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. <laughs> We're watching you. <laughs> My thanks to Peter Lynch, whose new thriller Birdland is now available for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play in Canada, and on iTunes and Amazon Video in the U.S. You should check it out. Thanks also to Cynthia Amston. She knows what she did. Peter's not on Twitter, but you can find his movie at Birdland Movie, all one word, and you can find the conversation on DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment and on Blu-ray from Lionsgate Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes, but only in the U.S., only for rental, and only in standard definition. Yuck. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these things, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It really does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.